Hello, good morning, everybody. Welcome to those who've just joined us. Um, I'm Aideen Howard, and I'm delighted this morning to be introducing actor Stephen Ray, who in turn is going to introduce his friend and colleague, Tom Kilroy. As you know, Stephen's career started at the Abbey Theatre before taking him to London, where he worked for many years before he set up the Field Day Theatre Company with Brian Friel. And he's just completed a run of A Particle of Dread, a play by Sam Shepard for Field Day in Derry. His close association with Tom Kilroy comes from his work with Field Day also, and most notably in his work on Double Cross, Tom's extraordinary play. So will you please welcome Stephen Ray. Good morning. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, Tom Kilroy provided Field Day with its great central play, Double Cross. I was privileged to watch it emerge from discussions that were occurring in Field Day led by Seamus Dean on the nature of identity. The play concerns two Irishmen, Brendan Bracken, who was Minister of Information in Churchill's Second World War government, and William Joyce, who was part of the German propaganda machine under Joseph Goebbels. The play became a great bivalve analysis of the interconnections between betrayal and stereotype and the pathologies involved in the search for a stable identity and the willingness to commit violence for the sake of it. It was met in this part of the country with a studied indifference. What on earth is he talking about? Tom's early plays, The Death and Resurrection of Mr. Roach, T. Sexton Shakespeare, Talbot's Box, and of course Christ Deliver Us, are preoccupied with the sexual repression of the Republic and its clericalism, the abuse of power by a celibacy founded on what celibacy is fascinated by. In violating it, it turns all sexual relation to filth and the indulgence of it into an exercise in secrecy and power. But the remarkable thing about Kilroy's work is that while it is thematically like that of other writers, John McGahern, for instance, formally it belongs to a different world. It has the caustic features of a harsh realism, but forsakes the regime of representation that we associate with realism. Kilroy's plays don't invite approval. They challenge theatre practice. He has in his work an aesthetic that belongs to a political community that has not yet formed. He is in some ways invisible to his audience because his audience has not yet crystallized. He asks his audience to be aware of the theater as an experimental space for serious investigation. He asks it to consider the problem of seeing something as both a structure and a narrative. The story we are familiar with, oppression, corruption, the blurred edges of sexual identity. But he asks us not to give up at the point where the narrative becomes strange or unfamiliar and becomes structure only. 
This is not because the structure is clumsy, but because the narratives we have as explanations for our political and social lives are insufficient, even hypocritical. Here is the possibility for envisaging a narrative that has a greater incisiveness. It's the fate of the experimental dramatist. Yet it has the sort of brutality that dismisses all sorts of nuanced and clever bourgeois analyses. Ask someone what a tragedy like Othello is about and few will be able to summarize it like Brecht. It's a play in which a man claims that a woman is his piece of property. Like Brecht, what is absent in Kilroy is nostalgia or sentimentality. What is looked for is not just insight, but the courage to have it. It takes courage to be intelligent, as intelligent as Kilroy. It's an ethical achievement. But in theater, you cannot have insight within the old forms. Kilroy is unforgiving to an audience who would just like a night out. It's not that he's looking for a way to stage a concept. It's that for him, a new form of representation on stage shows a concept being formed. When it becomes recognizable to the audience, the political community will have begun to change. Art is never an ideal. It is what enables us to change, to find the story of the world we actually live in. Kilroy invites us to change. Is he remembering the future? Ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Kilroy. Thank you, Stephen. I suppose I should explain, uh, first of all, that uh, what I'm going to offer you comes out of a memoir that I'm trying to write. Um, the other thing I should say before I start is that um, as we go along, you may wonder what the hell this has to do with theater. Well, the only thing I can say on that is that I've spent quite a bit of time trying to reduce some of this material theater, and I've failed. So maybe we're looking at uh, material that resists the imagination, uh, which was why I was very interested in some of the discussion yesterday about whether or not there's an appropriate time to imagine the past. I don't know if there is. The only thing I know that as someone who is interested in writing about historical figures, I'm fascinated by the gaps in the narrative of history. I'm fascinated when the record fails and there is nothing there, so that the play becomes a kind of what if something like that had happened. Anyway, my generation is the last one to have experienced the War of Independence and Civil War, not as history, but as memory. Now, I'm not saying that we lived through the period and can remember it, although sometimes I feel as if I have. 
What I am saying is that many of us has had the experience of the periods through the memories of our parents and the stories they told us as children. In this way, the detail of the period is peculiarly refracted. It is not just filtered through the possibly unreliable memories of the parents, it's doubly filtered through our own memories of what we received from our parents as children. Now, as this conference is reminding us again and again, memory is notoriously subject to fictionalization, to selectivity, to embroidery, depending upon the character of the one who remembers. Each act of remembering is subject to this distortion. And in the case of the imaginative recaller, the artist, memory may be heavily aestheticized, which is the most profound distortion of all. And I remind myself of all these qualifications as I recall my own parents. My mother was born in 1897 and my father in 1893. They were teenagers together in the small village of Caltra in East Galway in the west of Ireland. She was 19 and he was 23 years old in 1916 when Dublin erupted. As young nationalists, they joined Sinn Féin and the Gaelic League in their village under the guidance of the local priest. In 1917, a unit of the IRA was formed in the area and my father became its officer. At the same time, my mother joined Cumann the women's ancillary group of the IRA, members of which gave backup help to the armed volunteers. Both were intimately touched by the violence that followed. He was the leader in an attack upon a convoy of the Royal Irish Constabulary in July 1920, in which two police officers were seriously injured. There followed attacks and reprisals in the area by the Black and Tans, and in one such assault on the village of Caltra, my mother's family pub, the family was called Divine, the pub was invaded by the Black and Tans, and this is the first war story that I remember hearing from my mother. She told how her own mother, my grandmother, stood her ground in black we widow's weeds and silvery gray hair behind the counter while the drunken military shot the bottles over her head. This appealed greatly to us as children. And the stern old lady that I remember laying down the law to us children on our summer holidays in Caltra would have been well capable of such defiance. When martial law was declared in the Caltra area in November 1920, my father was rounded up in the general sweep. In early May 1921, he and five others were tried before a military court for the shooting of the two policemen. The prosecution depended upon the evidence of an IRA man called John Madden, who would change sides and give evidence against his old comrades. My father always expressed compassion for this man, who he said had been tortured to the point of mental breakdown. He also told us later that the British military officers of the court were both, and I quote him, fair and efficient. 
he and his comrades were convicted and sentenced to penal servitude for life. And the odd thing is that later that same month, he and my mother were married in the old pro-cathedral in the middle of Galway. How was he allowed out of prison to be married? I have no idea. Certainly after the wedding, he was back in Galway jail again and wasn't released until January 1922 as part of the general amnesty following the signing of the treaty. While he was still in prison, another incident took place which nearly caused his death. Although the treaty between the British and the Irish had already been signed, he was still a prisoner when in November 1921, six months after his wedding, he was one of the ringleaders of a violent attempt to burn down Galway jail from the inside. It was odd in that surely the prisoners must have known that they would soon be released under the treaty. Perhaps it was the last display of defiance against the British authorities. According to my father, the fire was a protest against the maltreatment of a sick fellow prisoner named Crowley. Crowley was a barrister and was one of the rebel judges in the court system, the illegal court system, set up by Sinn Féin and therefore a prime target of the British. Six revolvers were smuggled into the prison and warders were overpowered as they attempted to open the cells for the daily routine. Five wings of the prison were set ablaze. The military forces, regular units, and both black and tans and auxiliaries moved in to surround the prison. Inside, the excited prisoners sang rebel songs, and a battle for control followed. Memory sometimes inspires research, perhaps to authenticate the memories, or maybe simply a matter of wanting to know more. Anyway, my father's stories sent me to the local Galway newspapers of the day. And reading through them conveys the surreal atmosphere that Roddy Doyle talked about yesterday, of the revolutionary period and the lack of clear lines in the narrative common to every revolution everywhere. The Connacht Tribune carried exciting headlines of the incident. And I quote, dramatic protest, political prisoners set fire to Galway jail. How a captured warder gave the alarm, the prisoners and some police injured. My father was named in the newspaper as among the injured and was listed as Thomas Kilroy, Camp Commandant. In the press account, he was given bravura treatment like a character out of a play by John Millington Singh. And I quote from the paper, Kilroy, who was suffering a life sentence on a charge arising out of the Caltra ambush, got two severe baton blows on the head and is alleged to have been kicked in the stomach. He was almost unconscious when taken to the hospital, but after his wounds had been attended to, he rose up in the bed and declared, we got beaten to save the life of Dermot Crowley, but we would have suffered death had it been necessary to release him. In the newspaper, reports of relentless ambushes and killings of police and military throughout the countryside are placed side by side with the results of games from the local golf links. 
Mass men drag out victims from their homes on a nightly basis and shoot them, while the well-named local theatres, the Empire and the Victoria, continue to do brisk business in comedies and farces. A bi-Irish campaign sits uneasily on the same page near reports of the more lethal activity of Irish nationalism. Most unnervingly of all, perhaps, De Valera, the Republican leader, is received at the local National University of Ireland in Galway on the very same week as that of the jail fire. At the same time as his, former, uh, his, former, um, as his formal reception by the university, his own rebel soldiers struggled for their lives in the prison merely yards away across the road from the campus as if two Irelands existed side by side. Well, nearly 30 years later, in 1948, I had my first sight of de Valera, then Taoiseach. At the same time, I experienced the re republicanism of my mother. I was 13 years old. And it was during the general election campaign of that year, a winter campaign with some of the most severe weather of my childhood, when de Valera came and spoke in Callan, County Kilkenny, when my father was by then Sergeant of the Guards. The story was that Dev was met outside the town of Callan on the Kilkenny Road and put on a white horse with a green cloak around his shoulders. And in this imitation of the triumphal parade of an ancient Gaelic chieftain, he made his entrance to the meeting place at the Callan Thosel or Town Hall. A stone staircase ran up the outside of the wall to a doorway high above, as indeed it still does today. And it was from this high doorway that de Valera addressed the excited crowd below him. I was in the crowd. I believe my father ensured that we children were brought out that night so that we might experience that speech, his way of educating his children in politics. What was the appeal of de Valera to the Irish? A thin, gawky, gaunt figure, he had little obvious appeal in his person. More than that, the voice was a deadly monotone with a slightly high pitch and there was little ornamentation or even elevation in his use of language. Yet I can still remember the tension in that crowd on that miserably cold night. And not for the last time in my life, I was made to wonder at the power of performance and the way it can actually transform something, create something which wasn't there before something even beyond nature itself. The performance begins, and what was a nondescript figure suddenly becomes transformed in electrifying fashion before our eyes. And that was de Valera in action. Back home, after the meeting, there was a family row. The most memorable description of Irish politics disrupts the domestic scene is in Joyce's Christmas dinner seen in a portrait of the artist as a young man, where you had the famous row in the Daedalus household over Parnell. Well, we had a version of the same row, but on a much smaller scale in our kitchen over De Valera. 
my father in one corner and my mother white-faced and barely controlled in another. He poured scorn on de Valera, his lip curling in derision. In spite of bringing us to hear Dev speak at the meeting, he now called him the great destroyer of peace in Ireland, the man responsible above all others for the civil war. Didn't he stay at home and send others to London to negotiate the treaty? And then he rejected the agreement that was made, turning the Irish against one another in mortal combat. She chanted a different story. Mr. de Valera stood up to the English. Mr. de Valera wouldn't give in. He wouldn't settle for less than the Republic. Mr. de Valera wouldn't accept the partition of the country then, and he wouldn't accept it now either. Didn't Mr. de Valera give Churchill his answer on the wireless after the war? Wasn't the whole world lost in admiration of Mr. de Valera, and it was only his own who rejected him? I don't remember how the argument ended, but de Valera lost the election. Well, after his release from Galway Jail in 1922, my father had been approached personally by the two men, Michael Staines and Joe Ring, whom Collins had picked to help establish and lead the new unarmed Irish police force. They asked him to join and to use his influence to bring old comrades from the IRA with him into the new force. He said that at first he laughed at the idea as someone who had recently been sentenced to life imprisonment for shooting two policemen. But he was persuaded and he left for Dublin with 20 others from the Galway area. When he was moved with the first couple of thousand Garda recruits to the old British military barracks in Kildare, my mother joined him. I don't know what she felt about the new political situation, but I do remember her telling us as children about the beautiful married quarters in the camp that were lavishly laid out for their former occupants, British Army officers. Coming from the village of Caltra and the small cramped houses there, this would have been her first introduction to something like luxury. The big issue in the new police force apart from the fact that the country was moving rapidly towards civil war, was the question of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Members of the old RIC were being drafted into the new police force. Some of these RIC men had shown sympathy for Irish nationalism during the War of Independence, and as such were acceptable to the new recruits from the IRA. But others were offered by the British to help train the new force and set up its structures. And it is clear that Collins welcomed this offer of professional help as he accepted artillery from the British later on to fight the Civil War. But this imposition of old enemies, often at senior rank, was deeply resented by former IRA men who a short time before were engaged in an armed struggle against them, and in my father's case, actually shooting them. One of the first things he did in the new Garda camp in Kildare, hardly in keeping with his new oath of allegiance to the new state, was to join a secret committee of former IRA men 
to monitor proceedings in the interests of the IRA. And this secret committee became the center of the so-called Kildare mutiny that followed. He was in the group of former IRA men who took guns from the camp armory one night. Armed, they approached the RIC officers who were involved, threatened to shoot them if they didn't leave the camp at once. The mutiny actually failed, largely through the power and persuasion of Michael Collins and Kevin O'Higgins. And their speeches had an immense effect upon my father. And he quoted them later in life to us children, and indeed anybody else who was around, in our kitchen in Callan. Collins missed an important meeting in London and came down from Dublin to address the rebellious police recruits. His speech to them, like the later speech of O'Higgins, was about police duty, the rule of law, and the fundamentals of democracy. The impact of both speeches upon my father marked his final passage from young gunman to unarmed police officer. He spoke of the way Collins made the distinction between him and his fellow recruits and members of the old RIC. They would be the first Irish policemen, he told them. Unlike the RIC, who would enjoy the support of the people. And in Collins's words, and I quote, which is the passage that my father used to quote to us, you will start off with the goodwill of the people. You will be their guardians, not their oppressors. Your authority will be derived from the people, not from their enemies. Well, as Minister of Justice O'Higgins was on the board of inquiry set up to investigate the Kildare mutiny, and my father gave evidence before it. He told O'Higgins that he found it difficult to accept even those RIC men who had shown allegiance to the nationalist cause. In his words to O'Higgins and the board, being under the command of ex-RIC men was, and I quote from the inquiry itself, was very hard on ordinary men to understand. The O'Higgins speech, which he remembered so vividly, came years later in 1927. The Civil War was over by then, but the new state still had immense difficulties and found itself unable to pay its police force. My father was chosen as a delegate from County Kilkenny to attend a protest meeting in Dublin against the pay cuts and this meeting was addressed by O'Higgins, still Minister of Justice. And his words once again persuaded my father and the Garda rank and file to put allegiance to the state and the rule of law above personal considerations. And I quote the speech, which again he used to quote to us. You must realize that party will follow party in the ebb and flow of political tide. You must serve with the same imperturbable discipline any executive that may from time to time come to power. Well, within a matter of months from his speech, Collins was assassinated, 
and within months of his speech, O'Higgins was shot dead on a Dublin street as he walked to church. But back finally to the Civil War and to two final stories. As a young married couple without children, my mother and father arrived to their first posting, his first posting in Callan in late October 1922. He was to describe Callan at the time as like a frontier town of the Wild West. He loved cowboy films. <laughs> For instance, within 10 days of the arrival of the new policemen in the town, the police station was attacked by mass men and an attempt was made to burn it down. Perhaps, too, the frontier atmosphere was partly due to the fact that as sergeant, he was issued with a long-barreled Webley revolver and 12 rounds of ammunition. This was technically for the shooting of dangerous animals, but there's little doubt that it also reflected the dangerous times. That gun and those bullets were still in the bedroom drawer of our home during my childhood. I can still remember its cold, metallic heft and that I could hardly lift it as a little boy. I can still see the squat bullets. My mother eventually insisted that he get rid of it, which he did. Callan was a frontier territory in another sense. It was near the border of counties Kilkenny and Tipperary, and the, relative, the lively competition over hurling matches later in my life was of a more lethal kind during the Civil War. The Callan area itself was of mixed allegiance with both pro and anti-treaty families prominent in the community, but Tipperary was one of the principal centers of armed resistance to the treaty. Two incidents involving nearby Tipperary brought the Civil War painfully into the lives of my parents. In November 1922, the first Garda shot dead in the history of the new state was a young man called Harry Phelan. He was from my father's barracks in Callan. Phelan and two other guards had asked for permission to go to the nearby Tipperary village of Mulnahone to buy a hurling ball. And my father agreed, provided that they did not wear their uniforms. So the three were in a pub after their mission when three anti-treaty IRA men rushed in, one pointing a gun. My father always claimed that he had information that the gun was faulty and that it went off accidentally killing Phelan. The killer, a local man called Cody, was smuggled out of the country and was killed shortly afterwards in a traffic accident in New York. The other incident was even more typical of the period. The Civil War had by now reverted to guerrilla attacks by anti-treaty units of the IRA, the so-called irregulars, on different representatives of the new state, including its police. The irregulars were led by individuals who had become extremely skillful guerrilla fighters during their campaign against the British. While there was a command structure in place, in practice, the irregulars operated as independent local units. Everything depended upon the ingenuity of the local commanders. And the two most famous of these in Tipperary 
were called Dan Breen and Dinny Lacey. A month after the killing of the policeman, Callan was taken by the combined units of Breen and Lacey. It was seen to be so serious a setback for the Irish government that it caused disquiet in London and reached the pages of the Times. It led to a high noon type moment on the streets of Callan, although who played Gary Cooper, I'm not sure. Lacey and Breen entered the town from the Clonmel Road and the direction of Mulnahone, where the young policeman had been shot. The two guerrilla leaders were contrasting types. Lacey was thin, ascetic, cold, intellectual looking, and had an extraordinary reputation as a ruthless killer. Breen was heavy, jocular, swarthy, with bushy black hair and a quick grin. Both of them wore officer uniforms of the IRA. The Free State troops occupied the old workhouse at the edge of the town. With the arrival of the irregulars, the commanding officers immediately surrendered. And those who didn't change sides on the spot were disarmed and marched down the main street of the town and lined up at the cross. By now the townspeople had crept out of their houses and formed an audience for this demonstration of power and humiliation. Then it was the turn of the Gardaí. They were taken from their barracks and also lined up on the street before the watching townspeople. My father was at home with his wife reading the newspaper when armed men banged on the door. He was taken to the cross and lined up with his fellow police officers and Lacey addressed them. Telling them that the anti-treaty forces had taken over much of the country and that the Irish Free State was finished. He said they could now join the Republican fight or face the consequences. And then he walked from policeman to policeman and asked the same question of each of them. Name and rank. And for some reason, the question was immediately understood and decoded by each man who answered by giving his name and his rank in the IRA during the War of Independence. Unfortunately, each one of them had such a record. Lacey said simply, dismiss men, and the policemen walked away free. If there had been any hesitation, if someone had been in the RIC, for instance, my father was convinced that they would have been shot on the spot by Lacey. He also told how Breen took him personally to one side and spent some time trying to persuade him to take off the police uniform and rejoin his old comrades in the fight for the Republic. He declined and talked instead about his oath of allegiance to serve the people in an unarmed, non-sectarian police force, echoing the speech of Collins and anticipating the one of O'Higgins. I don't know where my mother was during all of this, but I can imagine her accosting the irregulars pouring out her respectable record of republicanism to them and demanding the immediate release of her husband. I can also 
imagine her terror. Lacey was shot dead early the following year in his native Tipperary in an ambush of Free State, Free State troops. His death was one of the events that helped to bring the Civil War to an end. Breen was captured alive, lived on, and became a TD and an author. And it was said he could never pass through a metal detector because of the bullets still in his body. Back on that day in Callan, Lacey was 32 years old, Breen 28, and my father was 29. Like most wars, this was a war of the young. Thank you. <laughs>